Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show. Sorry I'm a couple of minutes late here. I was literally swimming in the pool just a couple of minutes down the road and uh, I was like, oh geez, it's Wednesday and it's 7 p.m. almost. So I rushed back. My kids will be back in a few minutes, but I had to rush back quickly to make it on the stream for everyone tonight. So if you're just getting on, welcome to the stream. Hopefully it's, it's playing loud and clear. Hopefully my internet's connected. I didn't do any of my testing that I normally do to make sure like I'm actually connected to the internet. So I hope I'm connected to the internet right now and I hope that someone can actually watch this. I just literally plugged my phone in and away we go. And so sorry I didn't do any preamble at all, but uh, welcome to everyone who's, who's jumping on here. Today we're gonna talk about, and I just kind of thought of this on the, the drive back here really quick, um, about the path to becoming a millionaire. And there's lots of paths to, to get there. So we're gonna talk about a series of commonalities between most of the paths to reach a millionaire. And then I'm gonna talk about the path that I recommend or I think uh, you know, is the, is the most recommendable approach for most people. And this doesn't apply to everyone, but I think to most people. And the big thing is you've gotta think, hey everyone, I see all the people jumping on now. So it must be working. I see all the people jumping in the comments. Hey everyone. Hey Seema. Hey Trevor. Hey Alex. Hey South London. Hey Bill. Hey Cooley. Hey Shaylin. Hey William. Good to see you guys all on um, and all the other regulars who are gonna pop in. And then anyone who's watching the replay, smash that like button and let me know in the comments that you're watching. It means a lot that uh, you know you watch each of these streams. But talking about the path to millionaire and then obviously the Q&A that I do every single week about mostly real estate investing, but also anything personal finance related, anything in the sphere of how do you invest your money? How do you save it? How do you earn more of it? All of that fair game for the Q&A. So bring your questions if you have any and I'll be happy to, to give my perspective at least on you know somewhat of an answer, at least a perspective. But the path, we're talking about the path to millionaire status, right? And first I'm gonna start by saying millionaire isn't what it used to be. Like to be a millionaire today is not that big of a deal. Um, I was listening to this song, it was a great song by the Bare Naked Ladies. If I had a million dollars, it was on the radio and now I've been listening to it a lot, it just keeps coming to my playlist. And uh, you guys know the jingle, it's like, if I had a million dollars. Anyway, look it up if you don't know it. But, um, and I was thinking about it and I'm like, he's, he's splurging. And it's funny because in our, in our culture today, most people think that millionaires live lavishly. And that's one of the first misconceptions. Most millionaires I know are there because they know how to save and spend their money frugally. And if they're not frugal, at least they know how to manage and save a good percentage of what they earn. Typically, what you see about millionaires before the age of 40, if you're a millionaire before the age of 40, you're a saver. Fact. If you become a millionaire, period, you're a saver. Forget what you know. Grant Cardone says about not saving because the truth is even Grant Cardone saved his way to financial independence, to whatever you know, wealth he has today. You have to save a percentage of your income to build wealth. The equation to millionaire is all of what you earn minus all of what you spend equals the change or growth in your net worth, either positive or negative change. And hopefully it's positive change. Hopefully you're saving money so you can invest. And the idea with investing is that you start a snowball rolling down a mountain that becomes eventually an avalanche, right? To the point where like, and I've started to realize this and I'm, I'm living proof that it's possible. Once that avalanche is really, you know, coming down the mountain, there's so much passive income growth, you can't even spend it all. And so the, the, the mountain just gets, you know, the avalanche just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The snowball is so big, you can't stop it. That's what you want. That's the goal at the end of the path is to get to a point where your passive income is snowballing faster than you can spend it. How do you get there when you're starting with nothing, right? That's what we're gonna talk about today. And it, 
it's not the advice people want to hear. It's not super sexy. Like I can teach you strategies about how to invest your money into real estate and make more. I can, um, you know, invest or I can teach you how to invest in stocks or teach you how to invest in those things. But if you have nothing to invest, then there's no point, right? So to invest in real estate, to invest in stocks, to invest in businesses, you need to have saved some money. That's a key piece. So it starts with saving and it starts with understanding you have to delay gratification. That is the path to millionaire. And it also, you know, you have to be a saver, but at the same time, you have to be very hardworking. If you're watching this stream right now and you're like, geez, I don't work a full-time job. I work part-time. How do I become a millionaire? And it's like, I work a part-time job that doesn't pay well. And it's going to be like a, a slap in the face or very sobering for me to tell you that if you're watching this, you need to work harder to reach millionaire status for most people. The guaranteed way would be to grab a hold of a full-time job, maybe two of them or a full-time job and a part-time side hustle doing something you enjoy. You need to be working very, very hard in order to ensure that, uh, you know, you get to a point where you have a certain amount of mass income to, or mass wealth to invest. And I don't mean a lot, like you could save about 50 grand or 60 grand and then buy a house or start investing, but you need some capital saved up to get to that point. And so the journey to there isn't sexy. It's literally just working hard. And then once you're working hard, you have to watch and mind your investments, mind your, uh, your spending and then mind your income, right? So find ways to earn more money, find ways to save money as much as you possibly can. And then of course you got to find ways to make sure your investments performing. And this is an interesting piece too. I want to dive into is, performance on investment return. Too many people get into investing in stocks and they start trading. They start day trading with their stocks. That's not a smart, prudent strategy. Most day traders lose to the market. Statistically speaking, 99% will lose to the market over a 10 or 20 year period. Short term, they might win, but over a long period of time across all of their trades, they'll lose, right? Same is true, you know, anything, running a business or even real estate investing. If you don't put in the time, your real estate investment could become shit. But people reach out to me and be like, Mike, you know, uh, rent, rent, got into a property, renovated it. The renovation was double what I expected. Took a year and a half to kick tenants out or, you know, whatever issues they had. And the truth is, it's hard to do real estate investing and it takes time. People think you just buy a property and you make cash flow. It's, it's not like that at all. It's a lot of work. And so I wish I could sit on the stream and say, there's a guaranteed path to millionaire that doesn't require hard work. Not true needs to require hard work. You need to be like every day I'm making lists of things I have to do at all my properties. Even though I have a property manager, I'm thinking about the things that they're missing. And that's important. If you don't do that, if you take your foot off the gas and you're like, Oh, you know, my properties will just run themselves. Tenants will just take care of my properties. All is good. No, that isn't all isn't good. You can't trust contractors. You can't trust tenants and you can't trust your property manager. That's for sure. Um, you need to be actively diligently managing. That's why real estate produces better returns than stocks on average is because one leverage and two, you get to be in the pilot seat, you get to be in control. The problem with being in control is if you're a bad pilot, you'll crash and you'll burn. So keep that in mind. Anyway, that's my lecture for today. Um, I just wanted to do a little rant about that. I was thinking on, on the way here about how you know people don't understand how much work is involved in real estate, you know, in general, in business in general, right? Um, totally, Trevor, exactly, the point you just made there. So let's see if there's any questions. Hey everyone. 
So the first question is started full-time work this week. Feels amazing going through, going from student to working. Hey, that's awesome. That's a great feeling. Myself included. When I first, I was 21 and I got my first full-time job. Well, I guess I had full-time jobs in the summers and stuff. And I'd been working semi full-time 30 hours a week through school. But I remember being done school and then starting full-time job and then taking on the part-time side hustles and being so liberated. Like I was so proud of the fact that I was done school and now every hour I invested made me money. Because when I was in the school, I was investing time into nothing. For four years, I just would like grind and grind and grind to get the top marks in my program, et cetera, and so forth, get scholarships and just to get through, right? Just to get through for free. The goal is to like get through debt free, not to make any money in school. And so school, you know, it's a great feeling. I, I can sympathize with everything you're saying because now you're earning money. Now when you spend your time, you're investing in actually getting a payout, which is amazing because, you know, the education industry in general, I think is more of a delay than a payout. Most people don't get a good return on, you know, a degree these days. You, you can, you get investing in real estate or you could, you know, there's lots of high paying jobs that actually pay better than a university degree. So it's, it's a myth that you need a university degree and I happen to have one from an Ivy League school, but it's, uh, I'm not gonna say regrets because, you know, there were pros of that too, but, you know, I could have made a lot more money in a shorter period of time with investing over that four years, everything that I had earned and then had that compounded snowball into you know something much more than I have today. So it's something to think about. If your goal is fire, it doesn't make sense to do like an MBA or to go for like a doctorate or go to law school or even any education at all, really. Like you should be getting into a trade if your goal is fire. But um, I guess it depends on your goals and what you like. And if you don't like the trades, then okay. I mean, I didn't like any job I've ever worked. I've never had a job. I can say with confidence, I've worked eight jobs and I've never liked a single job I've ever had. The closest I came to being happy in a job was when I worked at Tim Hortons when I was a teenager. And I worked there for two and a half years. And I was the truck supervisor and I worked as the baker. And it was the chillest job. I had a great team of guys. We were all like teens. You know, there's, it was just fun. And it was the closest I came to enjoying my work. And it was the lowest paying job that I ever had. Um, so there you have it. Um, yeah, so for me, working was never a solution. I like being in control. I like just, the entrepreneurial vibe. I like to be able to, when I want to work, I want to work. And when I don't want to work, I don't want to work. It just so happens I like to work like 10, 12 hours a day. My mind just always keeps going. And that's just, I, I guess that's part of the millionaire path we're talking about, right? Is like, you've got to engage your mind all the time. I'm laying in bed at night thinking about like a rental property that has an issue, thinking about like the next deal I'm trying to take down, thinking about, oh, I've got equity in that property. How can I refinance it? Which two lenders should I take it through? One as the primary, a second as the backup. Okay, if that doesn't work, where can I go? Like I'm always strategizing all the time. That's just my brain. And so you've got to train yourself though. My brain didn't, wasn't always like that. I trained myself to be about my money and minding that, right? And I think it's an addicting ride and it's an addicting game. Once you get into that, um, sort of net worth planning, you get into like business strategy, it's hella addicting. When you get the, the I guess the adrenaline boost or like the emotional um, satisfaction related to having those huge gains, when you pull through, when you successfully get like $150,000 refi to your property, it's so worth it. And you look at that and you're like, wow, that was worth it. And then your, your, the, your brain craves the next one. So I'm craving the next deal all the time. It's almost like crack for me. Like I can't even stop. That's what you need. That winning in business and you know growing towards that millionaire status or, or earning money needs to feel like needs to be addicting you need to be after that high and if you're not you got to retrain your brain or find something you can do that gives you that i guess emotional response that serotonin boost in your brain that's 
the path to millionaire. I think that's the path to probably decamillionaire, at least. Anyone can get to millionaire. Anyone watching my stream can work a full-time job, make 40 grand a year, save, and with compound interest, if they just save like half of their income, then in like 15, 20 years, they'd be millionaire, right? So like anyone can become a millionaire by like 40. They start at 20 working any job. Like you can work at freaking McDonald's and have a full-time job, 40 hours a week at McDonald's, and maybe you side hustle like 10 hours a week doing something else, and boom, you just save like half of what you earn, eventually buy a house, and then just, you know, house hack it, live there, and uh, that's it. That, that's the path of millionaire. But decade millionaire, you want to be multi-millionaire, you've got to really love what you're, what you're doing. So get to all these questions in a sec. I see a bunch popping up, and I'll address all of them, as I always try to do every stream. Uh, Matt just jumped on and said, keep crushing. I'm like, love your stuff. Love these streams. Thank you. Appreciate the comments. That means a lot. Coolio says, rental property shopping in London this weekend. That's awesome. Glad to hear it. I hope you're using uh, a good realtor. That's, that's an important piece. If you don't know any good realtors, reach out. I can recommend um, one at my brokerage, Investor's Choice Realty. Um, yeah, there, definitely I would say like the time to be buying is probably like a month ago, but the next best time to be buying is probably now if you could find cash flow. I do think though, be careful this weekend, I think we're coming into a little bit of a high. It's possible we have a little bit of a jump in overall uh, sales data. I think there's gonna be a lot of pent up demand that was afraid because of the COVID lockdown. As COVID lockdown restrictions you know, ease up, people are gonna be jumping listings on the market, people are gonna be buying. And the heat of the spring that normally happens in like March, April, May, um, is gonna now be I think in June, July, and August. So we're gonna see a bit of a peak you might get caught up in this multiple offer situation. I think the fall we're gonna see in London, the students, a lot of them aren't coming back in September. There is no international program. It's, it's canceled till January. So there's gonna be a lot of vacant student houses, a lot of vacant, um, in general, duplexes and single families because there's gonna be so many bedrooms vacant that landlords are gonna start posting stuff instead of 600 a bedroom for 400 a bedroom just to get it rented. And it might be a short-term thing, but you could capitalize on that short-term thing and say, hey, you know, and I think probably November, people are gonna really feel it. So if you wanna capitalize on a trend, you could buy a really good cash flowing prop property probably in the fall um, if you're really looking. But it's never a bad time to get into the market and get a feel for things. I feel the same way about Orlando, Florida. I spent, you know, a few weeks down there going really hard into real estate. And uh, down there, I've not been buying a ton, but I'm still watching every listing coming out. I'm still studying the market. I'm gonna go, as soon as the, the border reopens, I'm hoping June 23rd, I'm going back down to Orlando. And I'm gonna be looking at the market and seeing the trends there so that I can you know, jump on the bandwagon when the time is right. Or if, if a cash flowing property pops up, even if not at the ideal time, I'll still take it down. Um, even at the worst times to buy, there are still opportunities. There's just less of them typically because there's so much competition. So my advice is don't get caught up in multiple offer situations, but if you can see an opportunity and take it down, take it down. And I, by I mean an opportunity, I mean something that aligns to cash flow, um, value add, that kind of stuff in my opinion. Any investing strategy, I guess, is, is better than holding on to cash, but if you can optimize and be in the most ideal uh, investment vehicle you can be in, that's, that's the ideal. It's all about optimization. That's the path to millionaire. Okay, next question. Hey, how you doing, Anthony? Hey, Alex. William says, Mike, happy Wise Wealth Wednesday. So it's the Mike Grossart Live Show, but I still call it the, the Wise Wealth Wednesday Show. My question tonight is, how do you determine when to leave your job? When spending savings metrics, or what spending savings metrics did you consider? Thank you. Um, how do you know when it's right to leave your job? That's a toughie. I think it depends on a lot of factors, one of which being your risk tolerance, um, your level of, of 
acceptable risk you're willing to take on. And a piece of it, William, is sitting down and saying to yourself, by the way, my hair's drying because I just got out of the pool. So sorry for like having crazy hair day today. But um, yeah, so I, I think that it's one of those things where you have to decide the jet. Okay, so there's a couple rules. One rule of thumb I've heard thrown out there that you know I've sometimes used is my passive income equals my living expenses, therefore I'm FI. Um, you depends on your risk level. Like I said, there's some people who say, you know, my rental income cash flow is enough to cover my living expenses. Therefore, I'm going to quit my job. That's pretty risky. Uh, I think that, you know, if you had a lot of vacancies, some bad debt expense, that kind of stuff pop up, that would be, you know, a bit risky. You might say, I'm going to retire, rely on my passive income from my rental portfolio, but I'm going to have an emergency fund set aside of hundred grand and I'm going to be prepared to work part-time or whatever to keep things afloat if I have to. That's more of a sound strategy than saying I'm gonna live on my rental property cash flow. When I retired, I retired on the 4% safe withdrawal rate. So I had a rental property, but I said rental properties, but I said if I sold everything, I could live on a 4% return on my net worth. And so I said if I had to sell everything, 4% return, I could live on that. And that means that you know there'd be guaranteed I'd be hedging inflation, guaranteed you know, my rental portfolio produced like 20, 25% return. So I was saying, imagine I didn't have that portfolio. Imagine I had to sell my properties off and I just had to put it in the stock market and take a 4% dividend. The, you know, all the major banks in Canada are paying five and 6% dividends right now. A lot of blue chip utility companies pay 6% dividends. So like 4% is super conservative and 4% includes capital appreciation. So that typically is like a, you know, 3%, 4% dividend, 3%, 4% capital appreciation on average on the low side. You know, S&P 500 returns have been 9% or something, right? So I guess there's a couple ways to look at it. One is like, is your passive income enough? And then the next question is, what is your sources of passive income? If it's an online sales business, that might be high risk. Um, maybe that passive income can't be relied upon. If it's relying on rental properties, you might say, for me, the, the benchmark was if I, when I first quit in 2017 or end of 2016, when I made the decision to quit and then two, three months later did quit, um, I guess I started the conversation end of 2016 I think with my boss um, and then official, like it was official, I think I talked about my head boss in February, I wanna say, February 2017. But December 2016, I kinda sat down and was like, I'm, I'm ready to do this. I was making two and a half times what I needed in, to live on in passive income from my rental property portfolio. And like, again, real estate is sort of semi-passive. Let's be honest here, there's still a level of management that isn't there with stocks or isn't there with other you know, um, investment vehicles like you know, lending, for instance, is, is also passive. Whereas, you know, with rental properties, you gotta manage a manager, there's things that come up at the property, whatever, so forth. There's more risk there, right? So the more risk, the less you can rely on that passive income stream. So William, to answer your question, it's up to your, your level of risk. You could, you know, Matt McKeever always says, he's very famous for saying, he jumped off the plane before his parachute was made and he made his parachute on the way down and then put it on, right? Um, so. He didn't have even enough passive income to cover his living expenses, I think, at the time. And he took that chance, right? And jumped out and did it with only a few rental properties. I waited a little bit longer. That was just, I was maybe a bit more conservative. There are people who wait even longer than I do. There are people who wait, you know, I got viewers who, who reach out and say, you know, I have a house in Toronto worth two million bucks, got a million bucks in investments. There's no way I can retire. And I'm like, you're not worth $3 million. If you're willing to, for instance, move to the GTA and rent a house or like downsize a little bit into a smaller house and, or pull that equity out and just, stay in the house you're in, you could easily throw that two and a half million dollars and leave a half million in your house, let's say, and put two and a half million dollars to work at 10% and you'd have, you know, 250K coming in every, like every year in passive income. So people sometimes just need to, there, there's that person who's like, 
actually could retire if they just restructure a little bit, or maybe they're just afraid something could happen. That fear is paralyzing them, and I guess sort of like pigeonholing them from realizing their true potential in their life, right? So it's it's that balance, I think. And each person's, I guess the answer to your question is it depends. I wish I could give you a straight answer and say like, this is the rule of thumb. I've heard like you're, if you have really solid trusted passive income that comes from like, you know, a blue chip stock portfolio, if that passive income equals your living expenses, you're pretty much like, that's a pretty safe, you can retire. Um, some people say 3% rule, 3% rule would require that you'd have so 4% rule requires 25 years of living expenses. 3% rule requires like 33, 34 years of living expenses set aside. I've heard one person throw out 50, a net worth. So a net worth is all your assets minus all of your debts or liabilities equals your net worth. So if you had $2 million in assets and $1.5 million in debts, you'd have $500,000 in net worth. If you had 5 million in assets and 1 million in debts, you'd have 4 million in net worth. Um, but the argument being that if you had I guess like the, the rule of thumb is it, the worst I've ever heard is 50 years living expenses set aside. That requires a long time to save that much up. Um, you have to be really successful in, in business for a long time to build that kind of wealth or you have to be really frugal or a combination of the two because the less you spend, the less you need obviously, right? So 50 years living expenses, if you spend five grand a year and live in like a shack, that's not as near as much as if you have a family and you need this like 50K a year to live, right? So it just depends on a lot of factors, right? At 50K a year spend rate, which I think is like extremely doable for pretty much anyone. Um, any family could live on 50 grand a year for a little bit of house hacking. It's like you get to live a really good life on 50 grand a year. And 50 grand a year times 50 years of living expenses is two and a half million dollars. So I think the most anyone should ever need to be like pretty pretty far on the Lux Fire spectrum, not, not very lean, but pretty far on the Lux Fire spectrum, would be around two and a half million dollars. I think the leanest you could probably do it is like $250,000. I've heard people make it work with higher returns and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's a whole range depending on so many factors, whether you're ready to quit your job or not. And then when you get there, there's some psychological stuff you gotta go through too. Cause you change from being identified as that person that did that thing to now like you were the accountant or you were like the bookkeeper or you were like the lawyer and you're not that anymore. And so it's hard to go from being like the consultant to being your dinner parties, what do you do? Oh, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm from fire. And they're like, what? And so it's just, that's the thing you have to battle with too. And what do you do with your time and stuff like that? There's a lot of things we can talk about in that whole realm when you get to that, that road or that bridge to cross. But I promise you, it's, it's a first world problem is how I'll say it. Like it's a good problem to have. And we'll have those conversations when you get to that point. And if you're at that point, let's have that conversation now. Um, Cause it'll feel critical when you're at that bridge whether you should, you know, jump off or cross. Okay, next question. Coolio says, exploring to China as a side hustle business is so bad these days. That does sound like a terrible business idea given what has happened with COVID-19. <laughs> that sucks, I'm sorry to hear that. How can you pivot your business in a way that you could take advantage of what's happening and make some money, right? How can you look at the current economic situation and find the pain point or find the need? And if you can solve a pain point or solve a need, you're creating value. And when you create value, you get paid. That's it. People that create a lot of value, they make money. And so the path to be a millionaire is hard work, frugality. And part of that hard work is working smart, right? Of course you want to work hard all the time. I think it's a, it's a critical component. It's part of the recipe needed to make it to millionaire, multimillionaire, decamillionaire, et cetera, and so forth. But you know, even more important than that is spending those hours 
being effective. You could, for instance, just be like painting your rental house all the time and that's all you do. Or you could instead like take on five deals and project manage and now you're spending your time more efficiently, right? Just as an example, right? Of how you could be more efficient with your time using high value skills and applying your time to high value activities. That's what I recommend. And in the beginning, it doesn't really matter, but as you rise up the ladder and continue on your path or your journey to millionaire status, you have to give up those low value tasks, right? Like fighting with tenants is a low value task. Something meant for someone who does $20 an hour, $30 an hour work for the most part. It isn't something you should be doing if you're a decamillionaire. You, you know, when you get to that eventual point where you're like, you're a big, big shot, you've got to change the types of activities that you're doing. You still have to be working hard, you have to be working smart. And so, yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on that. Um, so find that arbitrage opportunity. William says another question. How do you take distributions from your LLC? Um, forgive my ignorance. So how do you take them? So like you would literally go into the bank account and pay yourself. Um, it's as simple as that. If you want to like, you know, distribute your, yourself, basically there's a few ways you can do it. Like you could literally lend yourself money and then there's certain prescribed rules about what interest you have to pay back and when you have to pay it back to the company. Typically it's a very short period of time. You have to pay the money back to the company if you don't want to pay any tax on the money. If you want to pay, ta- if you want to take it out for like indefinitely into your personal hands from your corp, you're going to have to pay yourself a dividend, or you have to pay yourself a salary, or some form of like you can pay another company that you own as a contractor and then pay yourself. But like basically, when you withdraw money out, you're either going to pay tax, uh, you're getting a deduction for your corp if you pay yourself a salary. But then that salary, you get a deduction, deduction in your corp, but then you have to claim the income tax on you know the money you've earned. Or if you do a dividend, then you get uh, basically preferred uh, tax rates, especially here in Canada. If you take an eligible dividend from your corp, it's already been taxed in your corp's hands. Because So when you pay a salary out, you're paying a pre-tax income. When you pay out dividends, you're paying a post-tax. So your corp's already paid tax at whatever your corporate tax rate is, call it 15, 20%. And then you're paying the after-tax profit out to yourself. And so you get a credit for the tax that you've already paid in most cases, so that it equals out and you don't pay more tax than you otherwise would have had to. But hopefully that answers your question about dividend distributions to yourself um, or investors or whether you want to take a salary. There's lots of ways to skin the cat, but at the end of the day, that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, you can get pretty creative with how you, how you take it out, but that's pretty much it. Rob, good to see you on as well. Coolio lost 40,000 day trading. That's terrible. I also lost $30,000 or so trading on stocks, individual stocks. And you know, I've made money too, but to lose money like that feels terrible. It's part of the motivation that you're know, part of what I guess pushed me in real estate investing was that, you know, I was long-term holding, I was making cash flow every month and it seemed to appreciate long-term and I could pull the money out. It was levered returns. I was like, geez, you know, stocks to real estate is not even comparison. Real estate can perform so much better. Um, it is more work, but it can perform way better than the asset class of stocks. However, again, less safety, I guess some might argue there's leverage involved, you know, you're reliant and beholden to the tenant actually paying rent and things like that. So there are factors that come into play, but with good management, they can all, all that risk can be managed better. I think with a real estate portfolio where you're in the driver's seat, as opposed to a stock portfolio where you're betting on the management of the company to perform. Trevor says, nobody will be a better guardian of your coffers than you will. Exactly echoing what I just said. Ace of Spades says, thank you for going live every Wednesday. I'm wondering if you know what the proper way to remove tenants when the house is rented by the room not already occupied. Ace, it depends. There's a lot at play there in getting on a tenant. It depends on where you live and there's so many factors going on. If you share a space with a tenant, like you share you or like your mother, 
father or your kids, like anyone in the vertical family tree. So like your parents, your step parents, um, your kids, your stepkids. For some reason, brothers and sisters and aunts don't count as family uh, here in Ontario. But if they're on the if they're vertical to you, so like parents, step parents, kids, then and they share common spaces, you can just have the police remove the tenant. Landlord tenant board rights don't apply. Um, they're sharing common space, and so if their life if they feel threatened or there's some issue at all, you can just remove them. Um, they say you have to give reasonable notice. So you could say in 20 days I'm kicking you out or whatever's reasonable. I don't know. It depends on what they've done in the situation. Um, but that's if you're sharing space with them. If you aren't sharing space, there isn't a ton you can do beyond like if they're not paying rent, you can serve the notices. If they're disturbing other tenants, if there's any illegal activity like drugs going on, you can prove that. Um, that's easy enough. There's a form to evict for that as well. If you're moving family into the unit, then there's a process for that. Um, but technically, there's no difference really with a room versus a unit as far as like eviction processes, you can serve the same types of forms, unless of course you share common spaces. That's a key piece. If you're house hacking, it'd be smart of you to always share common spaces, if you can. Even if you go down like once in a while and use like a living room or have like a common area that you work, you know, share a washroom or something, because then the tenant has, is not considered a tenant of the Residential Tenancy Act. And in your own house, if you have an issue with like they're dealing drugs in your house, you can get rid of them, right? You call the police and protect yourself. So that's something I recommend if you're gonna house hack, you have to actually live with someone. If you have a roommate that's causing issues, you can call the police and have them removed. But if they're a tenant with their own unit, you don't share anything like in a side-by-side -side semi, you have no legal right to do anything um, to them. They're, they have their own rights to their own unit. And so that's something to think about when you're making the play. Um, but the best thing you can always do is just work with the tenant and find a solution. Most people are reasonable. And if you offer them some reasonable form of compensation or find them another room somewhere else, they'll probably just move. Um, that's my thoughts on that is find the amicable solution where you can give someone 500 bucks or pay for you know a month of their rent somewhere else and have them be gone and not have to worry about the fight because no one wants to really fight people put their back up because they feel like they have to most people don't want to fight it's, it's the bottom 10 percent they actually want to fight most people want to find amicable solutions so that's my thoughts on that and again like don't hold me to that legally and if ever, anyone's ever recording this is come back on me and try to quote me this is just like random opinions and I don't stand by any of this, legally speaking. Um, do what you wanna do. And this is not the, anything I would officially say to do. These are just, you know, do you. Um, do you think starting as a real estate agent at 21 with not a lot of money is a smart idea? Now, if you're passionate and you have the right set of skills that would make you successful in that field, one being networking, another being, you know, like that sales outgoing personality, that could be helpful to doing well as an agent. Um, you have to be able to get out of your comfort zone at that age and just maybe find another realtor who's super successful. That'd be, if you're 21, you're just starting as a realtor, I think, yes, if you're passionate about it and that's what you wanna do, chase it, do it. Five years from now, you'd be so thankful that you did. I wish I would've became an agent a lot earlier than I, when I did. Um, I left tens of thousands in commissions on the table, hundreds of thousands in commissions on the table probably, and I left hundreds of thousands in lost opportunities or deals that I could have had by being in a better networking position. As a realtor, you're positioned as an authority figure once you've developed. So the way I would argue to start as a realtor is even if you make no money at all or very little, find a really, like the top 10 producing agents that sell the types of properties you want to sell. So whether it's income properties or whatever, find those 10 agents and go have coffee with all 10 of them. Sit down with them and say, how can I add value? I'm a new agent, how can I add value to your life? Don't pay me anything. Don't even pay me a commission. I just want to help you sell properties. I want to help you market them. Whatever I can do, I'll go take pictures for you. Just let me help. I'll write your offers for you. Whatever you want, please. And find someone who'll take you under their wing. 
more likely than not, they'll cut you in on the commission. If they're a decent mentor, they're gonna share the profit with you if you're bringing value to their life. So find a top producer who's doing two, three, four, five hundred thousand a year in commission. And I bet you in two, three years maximum, you'll be making a hundred grand a year. Just by being around those people and learning their systems. You don't even need their clientele, just knowing what they know, piggybacking off of all of their knowledge, you'll become successful yourself. And so that's, that's how you develop an edge or a niche. That's what I wished I would have done. Instead of working in consulting and going to Ivy and doing what I would have done, I wished at 17 or 18, I just started getting my real estate license and I went hard in London at 18. Instead of living in, you know, and going to Western, I should have just done that. I would be much wealthier today and have a better network um, than I have today. And it is what it is. I can't go back and change the past, but I'd probably be twice as rich as I am now if I had done that. Now, I don't know if the Ivy degree or the credentials there would have helped me along the journey to you know, potentially have, you know, maybe 20 years from now it'll have paid off in a big way because a big deal comes through based on my education, right? Or you know, my reputation. But I honestly do believe that the path to the most wealth in real estate is by being an agent uh, and having that network. If you can work it full time and you're so young now that you can dedicate five years to just learning and you'll be like 26 and you're making hundred grand a year and who cares if you spend five years just learning and developing in a massive, amazing amount of knowledge and a network. So do that. Um, definitely recommend doing that, Natalie. Yeah, if you can find a mentor, that's, that's the key right there. Um, better to make less and learn more now. Call it cost of doing business, call it cost of tuition, but by valuing your, becoming valuable to someone who is of high value, you basically mandate that you'll make a lot of money yourself. So surround yourself with the right people. Alex says, what's the oldest property you've owned? Any tips on purchasing century old homes for investment purposes? Alex, I bought the, I think it was like the 10th um, house ever built in London. Uh, it has, it was an old Masonic lodge and it was built in like 17, it was originally constructed in 1792 or something. So I've owned a really old house. We, we, we revamped the whole house. It had been renovated, you know, a dozen times over the last, you know, 250 years or whatever, however old it is. It has a, had a heritage plaque on it. Luckily it wasn't, hugely protected. Um, it was in an area that wasn't like hugely protected, but yeah, it sucks buying century homes because there's a lot of things hidden that you're going to have to fix that have just depreciated beyond their useful life. And so when you're buying a century home, there's yet to, I guess you have to factor in that people have fixed it up along the way and it's possible that people didn't do it properly. Whereas a new house has building code, right? Like there's no building code in like 1800 and you know, the person who fixed it up in 1900, or 1920, they probably didn't have a building permit either because it wasn't really a department that did that. Whereas today, if you have a house built in 1990 or 2005 or 2020, there's building, strict building codes that they have to follow. And so you have a higher reliability in the construction of the home and a higher reliability in the property in general. So I think the thing with century homes is they're beautiful. And they often have high ceilings and tons of character. And if you can bring them back to life and you have the budget to do it, you can buy it at enough of a discount, they can be beautiful projects. And in my case, we bought this property for 205,000 and we sold it for like 400 and like almost $500,000 right after two and a half years of turning it around. And it was a cash flowing triplex, but that was a happy story, right? It could have went the other way too. We spent a lot of money renovating it. There was geez, well in the six figures in renovating it. And if I didn't have deep enough pockets to finish renovation, you could imagine me having to sell it halfway done for a loss, right? So there's, there's risk there when you take on that type of project in a really old century home. And again, I don't know if it's like a fixed up one or if it's a really beat up century home. And there's a whole, I guess it, it depends the qualifier I add to everything because there's so many situations where what I just said is not applicable, but yeah, hopefully I can help in general. There was some value there for you. 
That's all I try to do, guys. If you're not, if you haven't noticed, the thing that I subscribe to and believe the most is if you throw value out into the world, value comes back at you. That's why I spend an hour and 15 minutes on average, or at least an hour, every single week for like over two years now, giving away value. That's why I respond to DMs on Instagram, hundreds of them, probably thousands of them. Again, comments, Facebook messages, emails, because I believe if you continue to give value out to this world, value comes back to you. So many times that people reach out and it started as just a conversation or once, one time I had someone reach out and say, hey, I have a property off market, come take it. So throwing up enough value eventually comes back at you too. So don't be afraid to give value away, people. Don't be afraid to, to help people. And through helping people, one, you'll build a brand as someone who helps people and then when you need help, people will help you. And two, you now have a relationship with someone that you've helped and that person likely might bring you into a deal that they're doing or you know, provide it back to you in some way, right? So when you give, the world gives back to you. And so that's what I strongly recommend. And whatever you're doing, try to give more value than you take back. In all my relationships and all my business dealings, that is something I try to do. Like when I do a JV, I'm like, how can I bring enough value to justify my existence, to justify why we've JV'd? That's what I'm always trying to do is bring more value to the table than I've taken at the end of the day. And if you live your life that way, if you practice in business that way, you will go very far. It is a path to becoming a millionaire right there. There's a pro tip for you. There's Milo, he's gonna make a guest appearance. He's a good Chad, he's a good boy, but he's not the brightest dog, he doesn't listen very well. It's just the puppers. Next question says, uh, can't trust contractors, can't trust tenants, can't trust property managers, impossible to manage properties remotely then. Coolio, not impossible. What you can't trust them means is you need to have better systems in place. For instance, you might have someone else cross-check someone else's work. You might have the property manager come in and take independent videos of the contractor's work and don't have them work together, bring them in independently to check on your progress. And then you might even have the realtor who sold you the property come in and check on the property for you once in a while. Hey, once a month, just give them a call. Hey, can you drive by this property and just check it out for me? I just wanna verify you know, what the property manager said is true. Just, just drive by for me, take a picture. That kind of third-party verification can ensure you can manage remotely highly effectively. So yes, you can manage property highly effectively remotely. Just remember that, and I've learned this the hard way, guys. Like, I wanna do a video on this at some point, but I've done, this is a sad story, but I have a bunch of JV partnerships that haven't gone well. I've had people, I have one person, I don't wanna call them out because it's not who I am, but they literally, we have a JV contract and they're not gonna honor it at all. It's signed, I could legally sue them. And they're like, no, I'm just gonna sell it, take the profit for myself. That's someone I met through YouTube, that's someone I actually, I didn't know them at all, I just, we joined ventured. And that's the risk of trusting people. I am a very loyal and I guess I, my word means a lot to me. When I say I'm gonna do something, I you know, bend over backwards to do my best to honor my word. I expect the same from other people and other people aren't like that. Like some people just don't, they don't have the same integrity levels. Like they're like, oh, you know, Mike's renovated the properties, made it nice. I'm gonna sell it and instead of even 50-50 profit, I'm gonna have 100% of profit and he can try and sue me and like, that's a shitty way to do business, but that happens. And so one thing I've learned, another piece of wisdom I'm gonna share with you guys is get everything in writing twice over, everything. That's a mistake that I have made and continue to make to this day is trusting people in general on the path to millionaire. If you start building wealth, someone's gonna screw you along the way. And I've learned that the hard way. I've lent out money and not gotten it back, six figures. I've done joint venture partnerships where the partner didn't hold their end of the bargain. I've 
done deals where everything went better than planned, more money was made, and the JV partner still didn't want to share. Greed. People are just greedy, right? They go into situations and they just, I guess from the beginning, their, their intention was just to screw someone over, right? And so be careful in this world. On your path to becoming a millionaire, be careful. Um, and so that's, that's the word of caution for today. Work hard, be diligent, but be cautious. Don't take too much risk. And if you are taking risk, manage better. Manage the risk better. There's a lot of things in hindsight I could have done to manage my risk better. Um, yeah, so I'm still in the process of, of resolving all of those things. And through legal means, I probably will get a lot of it back. But who knows what can happen, right? Who knows what can happen in the courts? It can take years to get people to honor their word. It's crazy. Um, I always thought, like, I never thought I'd get into a legal battle ever. Because I'm like the most, I'm the type of guy who, like, I had a GP partnership that didn't go well once. And we made, we were supposed to make like 50 grand, we made like 10 grand or something. And I felt really bad about it because the project took like a year and I walked away from my share. I literally said, you have my 50% partnership. It's yours. We made, you know, 10 grand plus like five grand in cash flow or something. I was like, you have it all. I worked for free. I found this property for you off market. I renovated it. I did everything for free to build rapport. I'm giving it all to you for the sake of the, I couldn't deliver on my word. You have it all. And so that's the type of business um, value I like to have in a business partner is someone who's like me, who's reasonable, but it turns out not all people are reasonable. And so that's something I've learned along the way. That's something that I want to share with you guys who are getting in JV partnerships. Be careful. They're hard to uphold. Um, it takes a long time in court. It's a pain in the ass. And so if you can do deals where you're on title, um, you have a bit more control than if you deal deals where you're not on title, as an example. And a, a joint venture contract is legally binding, but only as far as you can sue them in court and get the money from them. If they've already sold the property and have the cash, there's not a lot you can do. You can register a notice of interest. If they agree, you can register on title a second mortgage or something. Those are all things in hindsight I should have done, um, but didn't, right? Because I was a reasonable, good guy and thought other people were reasonable, good people too. Um, everyone has their motivations for doing things. So, you know, maybe they're... I always try to like empathize with other people and be like, oh, that guy who screwed me, it's just, and like the person I'm thinking of, one of them who, who, you know, I let money to, and they're actually family. So that's the worst is lending to family because now it's like an emotional thing. Um, I know they're going through a hard time right now. And so it's, part of it is like to go after them, it feels really bad because they're going through such a hard time right now. But at the same time, like they made a business decision and there should be consequences. I don't know. It, it's a tough one. I'm just, I'm just rambling here. Hopefully that adds some value to your life. Learning from, from this millionaire who's, you know, made a lot of money, but also lost some money. He made some mistakes along the way. Hopefully you can learn from some of the mistakes that, that I've made. So um, net positive overall, I've made lots of money. I have no reason to complain. Even the small losses, the few properties that I've lost because people didn't honor their, their word, it's okay. Like if you have 50 properties and you lose five, it sucks. Like, you know, I'd spent hundreds of hours of my life doing that, but it's, um, yeah, it's it's not the same as uh, it's not the same as just having everything go well. When things go bad, you feel it the same way as actually you feel it more acutely when it's a loss than when it's a gain. To lose a hundred grand feels a lot more painful than to make a hundred grand, and the data actually suggests that that that's true. If you look at um, studies that done people's like happiness with you know loss aversion is is I'm I extreme I hate losing money um, more than any, more than making money I hate losing it. So that's the first rule is don't lose any money. Be safe with your money, people. Next question. Mr. Mikkel, I'm good. Thank you for asking. 
Antoine, thank you for commenting. Abdullah says, explain how to withdraw 50,000 in Canadian qualifying stocks or EFTs and pay no tax. So I have a video on that already um, about how to, with, how to live on $100,000 a year tax-free. It's been doing well lately because it's tax season. People are typing into YouTube. It's got a little over 20,000 views now. And it was how to, in Canada, live on 100 grand a year tax-free. And it was sourced. There's article uh, notes right in the description where you can click on it and they're reputable sources where you can go look at the articles that go into greater depth on how it actually works. But essentially, if you have no other sources of income, you can withdraw $50,000 of dividends tax-free per partner. So if it's a husband and wife, then 50,000 each, and it's completely tax-free because the corporation already paid tax and they're paying you a dividend, all these you know blue chip companies, they pay you dividends on after-tax earnings. So you get a tax credit. And if you make less than $50,000 a year, the tax credit is more than the tax you have to pay. So you pay no tax up to about $50,000 per person in Canadian eligible dividends. The key piece being Canadian eligible dividends. If they're you know foreign, they don't count. There are some companies that aren't eligible. There are, most of them are. The big bank stocks, like a lot of utility stocks, a lot of the blue chip stuff on the TSX all qualifies here in Canada. So that's an amazing thing right there is you can withdraw from Canadian eligible corps because they've already been taxed in the hands of the corp. The credit you get is completely tax free. Again, if you work a full-time job, not tax-free. So you'd have to quit your job and be retired or have a year where you're not working and then you could draw it out tax-free. Um, but yeah, dividends, when you make really low money, when you're in the low tax brackets, dividends are amazing. When you get to the higher tax brackets, dividends are the same as any other type of income because the gross up tax credits are gone. So if you make 200 grand a year, the dividends are not gonna help you at all. But if you make zero a year, dividends are an amazing way to earn an income. And as an early retiree, they're a fantastic way to collect your passive income. If you can have 100 grand a year coming in tax-free, that's a win. So that's why a quarter in my, in my plan of early retirement, I always put stocks in there as a, as a piece because the tax efficiency of Canadian eligible dividends. Dividends are better than rental income. They're taxed better. It's just a fact. So you have to think of that, right? There, people talk about all the deductions of the rental properties, but the truth is, there's always so many deductions. If you have a cash flowing property that's making 1500 bucks a month, uh, positive, that means after deductions, you're making 1500. Maybe you can squeeze it to like 1400 a month with an extra hundred bucks a month and you know, car write off or something, but you still have that profit you have to pay tax on. And guess what? Rental income is taxed at your top, at whatever your marginal bracket is. And so it's not as preferential as, um, as dividends, which give you a tax credit. There is no tax credit on income earned from rental property. So something to think about when you're building your retirement plan at the end or towards the end of your millionaire path. You might be thinking about these things on the beginning of your journey, but you have to solidify what you're going to do as you move down the path to millionaire. So that's the goal of this channel. That's what I'm trying to help you guys do is build your, build your path, build your, your nest egg as you move on the path towards millionaire. And I think everyone, every single person who watches my channel has the potential to become a millionaire, especially if you're work, if you're right now, like if you have over 30, 40 years of your life left, maybe you're 20 years old, you have 70 years of your life left, 80 years of your life left, there's no excuse, you can't be a decamillionaire. Even if you work an average job, just, ah, it's so easy. It's just, you just start, and start saving and start investing and let time do the work for you. That's the biggest thing is time is your ally. That's, that's the piece here. Small, consistent, good behaviors, you know, compound over a lifetime. And it's amazing, right? At the end of the day, you gotta say, I have an opportunity here. If you're like 25 years old and you don't have a job right now, you're blessed. Like you're young, that's the advantage that you have your whole life to grow. 
And so people are watching this who are 18 years old who watch my stream and say like, geez, like I don't know what I'm gonna do. Start, pick a path and something you enjoy and just grow. That, that's the biggest thing you can do. Um, so appreciate that. I saw a comment jump up and hello and then hello. I saw one come up and got deleted. I didn't see what it was, but it says comment deleted. I'm going back up to go through the Q&A. Next question says, Liam. So he says, hey Mike, love learning from your Q&As. What are the top linear markets in Canada you suggest looking out for such that rent to value ratios are around one? So I don't know. And, and by top linear markets, I don't know what you mean by linear markets. Look, looking out for such that the rent to value ratios are around one. I don't know what you mean by that. I think like you mean the 1% rule? Are you talking about like, I, I don't actually know what that, what, what you're referencing there at all. But like if you're talking about like where you would buy and have good cap rates and cap rate is rent to value. So like a cap rate is what we use in, in real estate to talk about. And that's the typical, typical jargon you'd use to talk about the rents you're getting to the value of the property. And so I don't know what a one-to-one -one is, but like a typical um, rule of thumb I would use is like, you wanna make about one-twelfth of the value of the property in rent each year, one-twelfth. So if you're, I guess if you're buying a $200,000 property, that means you're looking for 2,000 a month in rent or 12,000 a year, approximately. So that's something to think about there. Um, the next would be, um, I guess in a really small rural town, you might look for like a 2% rural property. In really high risk, small rural towns, you can find 2% rural here in Canada. Um, so 2% rural property would be a 24% annual return gross, uh, or 24%, so 24 of the value of the property, sorry, back each year. So that would mean you get the entire purchase price of the property back in a little over four years in rental income. So what that would look like on a $200,000 property is $4,000 a month in rent. So there are $200,000 properties that produce $4,000 a month in rent or $300,000 properties that produce $6,000 a month in rent. In these small rural towns, you'll find deals like this where there isn't as much appreciation, where there is higher risk, but again, that would be like a good ratio for rent to purchase price. In like GTA, like Greater Toronto Area, or Vancouver, or like a major metro, you're gonna expect like half a percent rule is a really good deal. So then on like a $500,000 property, you expect like 2,500 a month in rent. It's pretty terrible. Like there's hardly any cash flow at the half a percent rule. I like to be in the 1% rule, a little bit more than 1% rule. If I'm doing student rentals, one and a half percent rule in that range. But it, again, it depends so much on the city and what cities can you get good cash flow still? London, you know, all of Southwestern Ontario, there's lots of pockets where you can do that. Um, in areas like around Alberta, there's places you can get cash flow. Basically look at it like this. Look for cities that are not major, like if you're looking in Toronto, you're not gonna find good cash flow. But if you looked at like Oshawa, you might find opportunities for good cash flow. You go in, like in the peripheral areas of a city that you like and that you believe in the fundamentals. That would probably be a good way to invest. But there's so many factors at play when you're picking a place to invest in that aren't related to, what are all these emojis? I see a bunch of emojis pop up. What is this? Someone just mute that if they can for me. Okay, I think they're muted. Too many emoji spawns. There's always gotta be someone who's just coming on to add no value in the world. You know, everyone's trying to add value in their own way. 
and some people are just hurting and they just want to, you know, they just want to lash out or, or whatever. And like, I feel their pain. You know, I, I've been in those low points where, you know, all you want to do is just throw hay out in the world and it's cause you're going through a hard time yourself. And so I respect that and I hope you have a better day um, tomorrow or maybe a better day today. Hopefully my stream can add some value to your life while you're watching. Hopefully you learn something and it, it adds value to your life. That's, that's all I can hope for. Uh, thank you, Liam, by the way, for the positive comment about learning through the Q&As. Gina asks, love your content, Mike. What are your top tips for young first-time homebuyers? And if your credit is just okay. So Gina, um, you want to improve your credit as much as you can. The more you improve your credit, the more you improve your credit score, the cheaper the debt is going to be to borrow and the easier it's going to be to borrow. So always try to improve your credit score if you can. That just means being a good human being. Um, good human beings pay the debts that they owe. And so you pay the debts that you owe on time, your credit score will be good. So be a good human being and pay people back that you borrow money from. Even if it's the bank, I know people hate the bank, they hate the credit card companies, but like if you borrow money from someone, even if it's a credit card company, you should make good on that and pay it back. Um, if you pay back the credit card company on time, which means within one month of borrowing the money, it's interest-free. The credit card companies literally give you money for a month, interest-free, you just pay them back on time. So pay people back um, and you'll have a good credit score. I know people say like, oh, I hear a lot of stuff on social media about like, how the banks are evil and like whatever, but like they're just a business. They're just trying to make some money. They're taking my money, your money, and they're lending it to someone else. You know, so like if you don't pay the bank back, you're not paying me back. You're not paying your cousin back. You're not paying your dad back whose money's sitting in the savings account. You, you think you're robbing the bank, but the bank's just an intermediary. They're just lending out our money to other people and they're trying to make a little spread on it. So, you know, like anyway. I'm um, getting in one of those moods now because of those comments, you know, down below with all the emojis and stuff. Just thinking of all the, all the hate I'm seeing on, there's just so much hate on Instagram and Facebook right now. There's just so much negative energy. Since COVID started, I've seen so much negative energy on my feed that I just had to turn my feed off because it was just depressing me. There's just so much, the information, just too much of it. Um, so sometimes the low information diet is better in some ways um, for your path to millionaire journey just disconnect from, from the media because there's a lot of different you know, information going around and none of it's helping you on your journey to grow. It's all just noise. Like get the pertinent information you need to know about being safe during COVID and the rest is just noise, just speculation, it's just talking and it's just wasting your valuable energy. You could be investing in yourself. You could be investing in other people. And so that's what I have to say about, about all of this. Um, that's what I gotta say about it. And, and buying your first house, if you got the credit fixed up and you've, you've repaired your credit, um, tips for buying your first house, find something that, house, that you could house hack. Find something you can live in that can generate some income to cover your expenses and live there for free. Doesn't matter what you buy. I mean, try to buy something that's you know, a decent deal, but most people's first deal is not, not their best one. It's almost always their worst one. Uh, for most real estate investors I've talked to, their first deal is never their best. And so just, going, just know going in, your first deal is a learning experience. And if you can walk away from, even if you overpaid for the property, if you can walk away having lived for free in a property for five years, at the end of five years, it was a good decision to buy that house, right? So house hack, find a way that it has an extra basement, basement suite or a garage suite or you know a couple extra bedrooms you don't need that you can just rent out. If it can cover your mortgage and you can live for free, that house was a win no matter what. So that's my tip in buying your first house is stay within your budget and find something that's gonna be able to let you live for cash neutral if you can. That's the, that's the ideal. So Gina, thank you for the question. I appreciate that. Next question, Yishi, hello. 
Trevor says, people waste so much time in school and lose all that compounding time. And this is true. Your time is the biggest thing you're wasting. People waste their time more than they waste their money. And I hate how people waste their money. I'm, you know, at my core, I'm frugal, right? So when I see someone that's, you know, wasting money, it, it hurts me inside. But when I see someone wasting time, now it hurts me even more. Like I see someone stand in line for like a hot dog for like two hours to get a free hot dog and I'm like, or a free hamburger. And I'm like, geez, that's a waste of two hours of someone's life that can never get back. Time is a precious finite resource. Be, be careful with your time and investing four years of your time full time and paying someone even. So paying them money and time to teach you something over four years that you could just learn in a year on your own in the wild probably, at least the valuable stuff, is a lot to digest. I, I don't know how I feel about you know, post-secondary education. It's, it's a tough one, you know? Um, it is a tough one. Oh, I see a super chat coming in. <laughs> Fred, how you doing, Fred Winslow? Fred, how much sleep do you get on average? Lately, I've been getting about seven, but I like eight and a half. I'm an eight and a half hour sleep kind of guy, typically. I've been doing the 145 to, or like, we'll call it two, 2 a.m. to 9.45 sleep with one wake up at like eight or nine o'clock when my kids get up and then I go back to sleep for like an hour, hour and a half. So that's what I'm doing right now. There was a time where I was binging like three to 11. I would get up at 11 o'clock every day and my wife did the morning routine, I did the night routine. So if my kids wake up in the night, it's on me. If they wake up in the morning, it's on her. She's a morning person, she loves that. So it was a perfect you know, hybrid where you know, she would get to just sleep well during the night and I would get to sleep in the morning. Um, we had a good, good thing going with that. But thank you for the super chat, I appreciate that. That $5, it goes a long way to one, telling YouTube that my content is important because if you super chat it, if you watch it, if you consume it, if you hit the like button, by the way, for the 25 likes, let's get it up to 50, 60. There's been 70 people on the stream here already. We've had hundreds of people tune in and tune out throughout this stream already. If you can all hit the like button, that would help let YouTube know that the content I'm releasing is good. And I don't keyword optimize anymore. I don't even do thumbnails anymore. I don't even title optimize. In fact, YouTube puts the ads in for me. I don't even place ads, I just let them do it. And lately I've been really pissed off with how many ads they've been putting in the replay. So if you're watching this, I'm sorry. I gotta like go in and figure out how to stop YouTube from doing that. It's really annoying, especially on the long streams. They put in a lot of ads. YouTube's doing their thing, but I want this content to get out there to a greater audience because it can help more people, it can change more lives. That's why I do what I do. And so, next question, um, I'm gonna try to go power sesh because I see there's a lot here that I gotta catch up to in a short amount of time. We did that question, um, we did that question, we did that question. Okay, I found my place. Um, but Trevor, I totally agree with you, it's crazy you know, the opportunity cost of your time. Next question was, do you have any female mentees? Do you have any female mentees have kids? Um, what do you mean by that? Like, so do, the first question is, do I have any female mentees? The answer right now is no, they're all male right now. Partly my wife's doing, um, cause they live in my house and like my wife probably wasn't as cool with that. But like, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I just find that like most of the people who are reaching out and want to move here and want to like dedicate their life to real estate have been male. Like I think of like 80 applications that I got when I did the posting for the mentees to join and do the program. I think it was like four females. And so, yeah, I guess we're kind of like a bro cult right now. Not that I'm sexist or anything, like, you know, tons of, I have lots of friends in, in university and in high school that were female, right? Like it's not a problem at all. And like, I think women can do just as well in real estate, if not better in some aspects of real estate than men can. But um, no, they don't. And they don't have kids either because, um, 
They just don't. And none of the mentees have kids. They are all non, they don't have kids. Um, they're all younger, like all the mentees are younger than I am. And so they're on their journey. Or I guess one is older than me, um, but they're on their journeys. I guess I have a, I have a non-live-in mentee who's a mentee and he has um, three kids. So I will say this, that um, it's impossible, like it's impossible to live with me with kids. Like I don't have that kind of room. So if you wanna be a full-time live-in mentee, it's not possible, but I have a part-time mentee who by volunteering and getting into my life, uh, if you're watching this, Jimmy, um, definitely appreciate you being in my life and you're a good friend. So yeah, like you can, he has three kids and he's doing the real estate investing journey. We have a joint venture partnership going. Um, we're, we're building on the journey together and, and he has three kids. And so it's, um, it's totally possible to be married and have kids and, and do the journey. It's harder, I think, with kids, but it, uh, it isn't impossible. Because your kids are like your mentees too, right? So you're just an extra level of responsibility that you have to manage. Next question. I'm closing on two properties soon. When should I set up the HELOCs right away or wait for more equity pay down? Can I set up multiple HELOCs from different banks? Um, so it depends on how you close on the properties. If you're closing a property with a regular conventional mortgage, 80% down, or sorry, 20% down, 80% mortgage loan to value, then there is no HELOC, right? Because there's no extra equity you can take out. Um, there are programs like mortgages that where you create value on the property, you can pull out a percentage as a HELOC and a percentage as a fixed mortgage. If you go to refinance, you could put a HELOC on the property. That's something you can do up to 80% loan to value with some mortgage products if you have a fixed portion. If you're just a HELOC with no fixed portion, I think it's 65 to 70% loan to value with most lenders. Some will go 80%, but it's very rare unless you have a fixed portion of the mortgage with them as well. Um, but when you set them up, as soon as you have equity in the property, pull it out. That's my, that's my mindset. And if the property doesn't cash flow after you pulled the equity out of it, at least 80% of it out of it, then you are in the wrong property, period. Um, that's my belief on that. Next question. Oh, geez, there's so many here. I gotta go rapid fire here, guys. I'm gonna try to go even faster. I'm happy to provide the tip, no problem. Uh, when you say make money from compound interest, do you mean through stocks or houses or what do you invest in? compound interest. So compounding is the idea that when you invest money in something that it continues to grow and then the growth on that growth compounds. So what that means is if you have, you know, $100 and you invest it and it gives you 10% return, you have $110 and then $110 all grows at 10%. And so in year two, then you end up in a situation where you have, you know, $121, et cetera, and so forth. And so it grows faster and faster and faster. And the growth on the growth is what is compound interest. And so that's, that's what I mean by that. And whenever you invest in, you'll have compound interest. It is more acute in, you know, like a, an interest type vehicle where you're being paid monthly and you can reinvest that or dividends where you can reinvest that, it compounds faster. The more compounding periods that you have, so if it pays you like daily and it's compounding daily, that's more powerful than say like compounding once a year. So you're gonna find opportunities to invest in asset classes, whatever it is, real estate, stocks, interest, like lending, interest, businesses. There's tons of ways to invest your money, but make sure it's one that is gonna compound, you know, and work in your favor. Oh, another super chat, thank you. Do you feel residential real estate on rural, i.e. Tri-City, Waterloo area is better cost and return than the GTA, big city, urban? Um, Fred, it depends, that's a good question, but it depends, I think, on on a lot of factors at play. One of them being like, when you say feel, right? You say feel if it's better. 
it depends on where you live, on your investing strategy, etc. You're going to get a better return in the rural areas like you talked about than like on, from a cash flow perspective than you're going to get in the inner city. It's just a fact. Comparing two Apple deals, right? Apple to Apple. But in the city, you're going to have a lot easier time renting your property out even in recessions because it's the inner city core. You're going to have stronger demand for your rental property. You're going to have maybe likely better appreciation, not always, but you will at least have better market fundamentals. You'll have a stronger long-term prospect than a rural city will. Um, now that the rural city might, the city might expand into the rural areas and they'll appreciate faster. So it's possible that you could do better in rural and have better cash flow. But again, you're gambling at the end of the day. And I like to gamble where there's more cash flow. I feel better investing with this cash flow because my debt is being serviced by the cash flow. And so that's why I'm a cash flow investor first and an appreciation investor second. But as you build a larger portfolio, you might want to diversify and buy something in the city because it has strong market fundamentals. Your money is technically safer. It's like when you're grading two types of bonds, it's like a higher grade bond. If you're comparing like the ratings agencies, like Moody's will rate different um, types of debt, different bond classes. And like, I would say inner city is like a better grade bond than rural, uh, only because it has better uh, long-term fundamentals and there's just a better overall economy. And that's why the real estate's more desirable. It's why the cap rate is lower because more people want to buy in the better areas. And so location, 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 but location is also very subjective. I have people tell me location, location, location. I want to put a piece of land you know, to develop and that's outside the city. And that could be like the ideal location for you. So it does depend on your strategy too. Um, but good, good question. I'm happy to provide, you know, hopefully I provide some value enough to justify the 699 you just gave me. If not, shoot me a message on Instagram. And I'd be happy to reach out for those people that super chat. I'd be happy to reach out. Just let me know you were the one on Instagram that super chatted me. Okay. Um, next question, scrolling up to find my place. There are a few, few questions here. Oh, geez. There's quite a few. Um, have you been in the Whitehorse Yukon? If so, is it worth visiting from the States and what would you do there? Uh, I actually, believe it or not, have a brother-in-law that lives just outside of Whitehorse in the Yukon. And so I actually have been, I flew to Vancouver and then flew up um, to Whitehorse. So I have actually, uh, I have actually been, and it's a kind of a cool, cool area. There's some unique perspectives in the area and some cool investment opportunities, even for those people willing to take that kind of um, risk and see that type of opportunity. So yeah, check it out. It's a great place. There's some hot springs up there that I checked out too. A lot of um, really cool places to hike too that we did some hiking when we were up there. So yeah, definitely strongly recommended. I have been there. Uh, next question. I don't think I'm gonna get through all these questions before my daughter's bedtime, but I'm gonna try my, my darn best. Thank you, Coolio, for the, for the positive comment. Lindsay says, hey bro, good to see you. My home country, NZ, has now only one active case of beer flu <laughs> and they're planning on lifting all restrictions except international travel. Is now the time to invest in NZ stocks? I don't know. I, I don't follow um, the market. Like Again, I don't follow the stock market a ton in general, especially specific markets. And I would say, I feel like the market is overvalued right now based on the level of unemployment, the market fundamentals that I'm seeing at a very high level. And I'm not an expert at all, but I'm just saying that um, I would wait personally before you know going super deep on the market, unless of course you're super long on the market overall, in which case just dollar cost average and continue to buy and long-term you'd be fine. Two choices to lower in price with my pop's credit and do it that way, or should I just do it myself, title and my name? 
way I'll see I'll earn credit over time. So Rodolfo, to answer your question, um, it depends. You could do it, if you did it in your dad's name, like you're saying, you'd have you know cheaper debt and it'd be easier to get the deal done. If you did it in your name, you'd be able to build credit out faster. The thing is you can build credit without having the deal in your name. So there's a lot of things at play. Do you want to be in business with your dad? That's something to think about. If you can't get the deal done in your own name, you may be forced to partner with your dad. And if you go on, you go on title with him, I guess, you could put him on 1% on title and you on 99% on title. You could go, you on title 100% and he guarantors the loan and then boom, you're, it's your deal, you're in control and he's just guaranteeing the money. So if, he's, if you're that close to your dad, that's always an option too. But good question. Next question, when you're saving up for a down payment, where would you recommend parking the money? Curious because of liquidity. Ace of spades, good question. I think that a great place if you need like immediate short-term liquidity is to put it in a high interest savings account with a promotion at a major bank. A lot of the major banks are doing 2% promotions right now. We get 2% interest. That's better than T-bills. That's better than GICs, better than government debt. The banks just will take your money and give you a fixed rate of return. The money in that savings account is CDIC uh, insured. So your money is guaranteed. So in that respect, I would say that the best place to put your liquidity is there. If you have outstanding HELOCs or outstanding lines of credits that are you have money on, pay that down and set your liquidity there because it's saving you, it's gonna get you a higher return than 2%. If you have credit card debt or debt anywhere, park it there and then just draw it down as you need it. If you have a HELOC, you always just take that money back. Use that as your place to store your liquid cash, right? It'll give you a guaranteed return by paying down the debt on your property, right, for that period of time. Don't pay down a fixed mortgage because you're not gonna be able to get that money out, but you pay off a flexible revolving line of credit or something, and that's a good use of capital. It's a great way to place your, your cash if you need liquidity. There's always things like, um, you know, gold and silver as stores of value, but then you're stuck with the fluctuations in the market. Probably not a great place if you're in super, super short-term parking cash. I think the best places are where I just mentioned, those two or three places. There might be better places, I just, that's all I can think of at the top of my head. Uh, hopefully that provided some value for you there. Uh, next question, how many homes can you own before the bank won't give you a mortgage or makes you pay higher rates? Cody, I wanna do a video with someone who's reached out to me from a lending, um, their mortgage broker, and they do up to 100 properties you can buy yourself, 100 properties. They have lenders that do zero to five deals, the big banks, they have big banks that do five to 10. They have alternate lenders like um, Dominion uh, has partners with like Manulife and Desjardins, it'll do 12 or 13 properties often. And then you go through the commercial side and the A lenders will do up to 25 properties like RBC Commercial, et cetera and so forth if you have cash flow in your property. And the credit unions will go sometimes 20, 30, 40 properties, but there are alternate lenders that are still a lender, like 3% type debt, get you up to 50 properties. So my mind was blown. There's a glass shattering sound that went off when I had that conversation that there's no limit. And so abundance mindset, you don't have that five or 10 deal limit and it's over. That's actually not the case here in Canada, unless you're dealing with the wrong types of brokers who don't have access to the right types of lenders. So that's something to think about. And you don't have to go B lender. You can go A lender and get it done. So you don't have to pay six, seven, eight, nine percent if you have good cash flowing properties. Something to think about. Next question. I lost my spot again. It always, after a while, it resets and I have to scroll back up again. It's a bit of a pain. Um, but Cody, yes. I guess the higher the risk, the more interest they would charge. But again, if you have good cash flow, they won't consider that a risk. Seeking Virtue says, do you know about buying RV parks? I don't know a ton about them, no. Like I've looked into it a little bit, but I haven't owned one, no. 
a someone with a 12% cash on cash return or because of leveraged real estate returns, not even including equity was north of 100%. That's amazing, a 12 cap, you know, levered up properly would give you a great return. That's an amazing opportunity. Remember that um, trailer parks might depreciate at a faster rate than other types of buildings. So factor that depreciation into your, into your analysis and make sure you're adjusting for that. But yeah, I think that could be a great opportunity. Hey Mike, question, how long do you have to wait before refinancing your investment home? And if borrowing from a private lender, how does refinancing work then? Uh, great question, the answer is it depends. It's called a seasoning period. So the time in which you can start a deal and then like, get a mortgage funded and then refinance it again, is called the seasoning period. How long till the bank will let you refinance? Typically it's six months. I've heard some banks a year, there are exceptions that can be made where you can get it done faster. And you could just go to another bank and try to refinance with them. And then the current bank you're at will be like, geez, we don't wanna lose this mortgage business. He's gonna break out and bring his mortgage somewhere else. We'll give him the refinance sooner than the seasoning period. And the process is the same as applying for a loan to buy a property. It's just now you have an appraisal done, everything else is effectively the same. What is the best commercial fixed term rate on a five to seven year office mortgage? Uh, a colleague has received from a Canadian bank. Best commercial rate, um, geez, I don't know. Like if you're talking apartment residential real estate, that's kind of commercial. If it's CMHC approved, I know people are getting 1.85% CMHC backed 15% down apartment building deals. But, uh, and because CMHC is guaranteeing the deal, you have to jump through all the hoops of CMHC, of course, to get that. But then a lender would give you like a significant discount on your interest. But um, office space, I don't know, typically like four or five, 6%. I don't know, I can't think of any specific rates off the top of my head. I don't invest in commercial office space. It's just not my niche. So I don't know a ton about the interest rates, but from what I've heard, like four to 6% is typically like a lender Commercial rates on the high side, depends on a lot of things, but the maneuver that allows the deductibility of residential mortgage interest, called the Smith Maneuver, is what you're talking about, and use funds for commercial purchase is the only reasonable way to buy commercial as rates are high. Um, yeah, I, I guess the Smith Maneuver, but like I, I feel like you just don't wanna own commercial in general because why would you use Smith Maneuver and then use that money as down payment for properties and lever it up again? Um, yeah, of course you want to make your house tax, your mortgage interest on your house tax deductible. That's a win uh, overall, if you can. At what point would you evict over noise complaints? Um, I guess it depends on if it's impacting other tenants or neighbors. I guess if there's repeated offenses, that would come into play too. And then you want to do something about that. But first, just talk to the tenants and find a reasonable solution for everyone. What do you think about Bill 184? Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't see a whole lot of negative in the substance of it, and I didn't do a deep dive, I just read a couple articles on it, but here in Ontario, the Bill 184 coming out, seemed to be, you know, there's a couple things that really procedurally landlords need to do a better job of. So like we need to just tighten up how we serve notices and things like that. I think that any landlords abusing the system, so evicting tenants unlawfully are being punished worse now. Um, any tenants or any landlords who are evicting tenants to move into the property and then not actually doing that, like lying about it and saying, hey, I'm moving into it and then not, um, they're gonna be punished more, so like don't do that. Um, unless you're actually planning to move out of the house, in which case like do that. But uh, there was also some stuff that made it a lot more fair for landlords because there's a ton in there that like right now, it takes like a year to evict a tenant that's that's negligent, not paying rent. The landlord tenant board is shut down, so there's no evictions right now at all. But when things come back online, um, we need this procedurally to get through the motions faster. It was taking months and months and months to get answers from the board on a lot, like someone stopped paying rent and six months later, you're still fighting with them to get them out. And they are just laughing all the way to the bank. 
and it was an, it's an abuse in the system. And so this is going to tighten some of that. Like if you're a really shit tenant, you're a bad tenant who is a serial non-payer of rent from landlord to landlord to landlord, and you just destroy units and you're like just a bad tenant in general, you won't do well with bill 184. But if you're a good tenant and you pay your rent and you like keep a decent house, it's going to be good for you. So I think bill 184 is not a bad thing for landlords at all. And it's a good thing for tenants too. It gives them some more, like the good tenants are gonna benefit from Bill 184 and the bad tenants are gonna not benefit as much. So um, we need better reform than Bill 184, like a lot better to be honest, but I'm not gonna get on that, that soapbox right now on this stream. That needs a whole other video in and of itself. We are extremely at a disadvantage right now. It is extremely unfair being a landlord here in Ontario. It's to the point where like, I don't even wanna inherit tenants when I buy a property, it's that bad. Um, and I'm very careful about, I want to be very careful about placing tenants in the properties as well. Uh, okay. I got to go faster here, guys. Um, I'm not even catching up with the questions coming in. I'm trying, I'm trying. Um, next question is, do you have to pay tax on dividends you pay yourself? Yes, but you get a tax credit because your company already paid tax. Answer that question already. Natalie, no problem. Thank you for the comment. Fred looks like a tiger in your house. <laughs> yeah, he's my boy. He's my boy. His name is Milo. He's a good boy. He's a good puppers. I walk him every night. As always, more great info. Thanks again for dedicating your time to others, Mike. Hey, no problem, Sean. Happy to help. I need a broker from your brokerage. Coolio, I'd be happy to provide a, uh, again, like it's our own brokerage. So just shoot me a message on Instagram and I'll connect you. Oh, Nara's not supposed to be on camera. Emma, you're not supposed to be on camera. You know the rules. Mom will get upset. Would you say co-op is a good investment for a family member that would pay the mortgage? It depends. Um, six figures. Hey, Mike, could you let me go? Fox? No, Louis bought. <laughs> no, unless it's secured, maybe. I have to know the person. There's just a lot more going into who I lend to now. You learn a lot from your mistakes. That is true. Jason, hey, how you doing? It's perfect for a parent, which I'll eventually have to take care of. Then maybe it makes sense for you to invest in that, that co-op, Christian. It just depends on a lot of factors, I think. For me, I don't invest in co-ops. It's not my thing. Um, there are too many greedy people out there. It is true. That is a good comment. Your integrity, energy, and persistence will never fail you. It's more, far more reliable than genius luck or natural talent. You likely have those two, but have you seen, have seen you persist for years now? Fred, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, for years now, I've been, you know, out there and open and posting eight times a day on my stories. And again, I, people who know me, I'm an over communicator. So like to the end, I will tell you everything. I, it's just not my style to hide things. I'm very much an open book and that's my style of communication. Some people aren't. There's just like no communication and then just like a shutdown. And I wish that people would communicate and, and find solutions. Okay, Emma, be out in just a sec, okay? Thank you. Sorry, I'm not allowed to have her on camera, guys. I wanna, wanna feature her, but my wife's very adamant. I will, in just a minute, I have to end this stream. Oh, she's putting her book away, guys. I'll try to wrap this up as quick as I can so you don't see her. Yeah, get away from the bookshelf there. I gotta wrap this stream up, guys. She's in here at the bookshelf putting, uh, putting a book away. I'll be there to read her a book in just a sec. Uh, thoughts on a career in CBRE. What is CBRE? Commercial something real estate brokerage. Um, I've heard of the, it sounds like a familiar firm. Um, sounds like a good one. Pick a different one, Emma, from your, from your bookshelf in your room, my girl. Okay? It is like 8.30, Mike. Okay, I gotta wrap this up. It's 8.30, guys. Seriously, I was already late to start. Uh, okay, I, I haven't, those ETFs I don't follow. Um, so true dividends and time can be your ally. I love monthly paying ETFs. Yeah, because they compound more times. 
um, if you buy a duplex, uh, if you buy a duplex, do you have to be a landlord? Yeah, if you bought the property, you're a landlord. But you don't have to be the property manager. You could put someone else in to deal with the tenants. You could just be a silent investor in the property or a JV with someone and they would be the active person. In which case, you'd never have to deal with a tenant ever and not have to act as a landlord. But by definition, you'd be a landlord, I guess. Um, rental income would be more mentally taxing and risky. I prefer a spreadsheet to work with and dividends investing over the hassles of finding trustworthy renters and volatile interest of mortgages. Jennifer, totally agree with that um, perspective. I think there's definitely truth to that and merit to that. You just will always have less return and have to work harder there to build a larger portfolio so that you don't have to have the tenants. So if you want to retire sooner, you might have to have the tenant. Okay, next one here. Sorry, I'm gonna try to put this back down. Okay. Last questions here, I think. Uh, I live in America, I'm 25 years old, that's awesome. Good to see you on Mow the Crow. Don't let negative people phase you out, guys. That's true. Alex, no problem. Happy to help. What happens if the market tanks when you own real estate? Well, you're levered. And so you feel the acuteness of the drop five to one. So if you have a $200,000 property that drops to a $100,000 property and you had, for instance, $20,000 down payment in it or $40,000 down payment in it, your whole $40,000 payment is gone now. Your mortgage on it, on a $200,000 property, was probably $160,000. You put 40,000 40, down, so that's 20% down. And if your property dropped in half, then your mortgage is now 160, your property's worth 100. And so you just lost all of your money and some. You stole the bank 60 grand. That type of thing doesn't happen, typically. Typically, you have a 5% pullback in real estate, and that's huge. Or a 10% pullback in real estate, and that's huge. It's the reason why I argue when you're buying a $200,000 property, it better be damn worth 250 or 300. You better be smart in what you're buying. And if you buy something for 200 that's worth 250, the market pulls back, you know, 20%, you're still at what you bought it for. So buy smart so when the market pulls back, you don't lose any money. You have that margin built in by adding value to the property. Uh, okay, good questions. When you partner with people who provide the down payment, but you find the deal and you split 50-50 of these deals under the other person's name, so they would be the ones who's going bankrupt over leverage. Mike Smith, yes, exactly. Um, if you, when you joint venture and they're on title, um, they would be the one taking the most risk. That said, a joint venture agreement is, um, depending on how you've written the agreement, you are liable as well. So if you 50-50 partnered and you agreed to split the losses or gains 50-50, then you would be having, they would have to sue you, but you have to put out 50% of the loss with them. In some cases where there is a loss, you, I have to put the money up with them. I've never had a loss in a joint venture partnership yet. I've made less than targeted, but just never lost money on one yet. If I ever were to lose one, uh, and anything's possible with COVID, but if I were ever to lose on a joint venture partnership and we sold it and there was after cash flow and after you know appreciation and the sale, it's all done and there's still no profit and say it's a $10,000 loss, we'd each put up five grand. That's how it works. Legally speaking, they're on title. So they have to go after you now for the money. If you're both on title, then you both have to put up five grand um, for the sale to go through, right? But I mean, usually joint venture partnerships, you can work something out. Um, just got pre-approved from HLM for 190K loan. I'm looking for a deal. Should I do a flip or a burr for my first deal? I like burrs because they're more tax efficient. I hurrying, I hear you. I'm trying, my dear. Sorry, my daughter really wants me to go. I gotta, I gotta go, guys. Um, Quinton, I, Quinton Green, I gave you some advice already earlier. If you're watching the stream, I literally gave advice on becoming a realtor. Um, JR, that's a great way to do it. If you can use a line of credit and the bank will let you do that or don't tell them and do it. Um, that's always an option. What do you think about classic car businesses? I'm not a, I don't know anything about classic cars. 
I think that cars depreciate, but I guess classic cars don't appreciate at the same rates. So that's something to think about. Um, another speculative uh, investment is high interest accounts on USD stable coins or Bitcoin. BlockFi does it. Super cool to check out. Always do your own research and know your risks. Liam, I don't know anything about that. Um, I wouldn't recommend that. It sounds super high risk. Again, like you're buying into something that is has no fundamental underlying value. Like Bitcoin has no underlying value at all. Um, and it's not even desirable. If a better technology comes along, it's worthless. It's only worth it you can sell it to someone else for. And it doesn't cash flow. That's the part that I hate the most. There's no cash flow. You can't rent Bitcoin out. You want a piece of land, you can rent it out. You want a building, you can rent it out. You want a car, it depreciates, but at least you can rent it out. You want a business, it cash flows for you. There's appreciation and cash flow. So that's why I like cash flow. Accepting more mentee applications. I'm always open to more applications, but right now I don't have any spots. So I just had a spot open up. There's a new mentee moving in actually, believe it or not, in July 1st. But I was super silent about that. I like barely even made a post about it. I had some applications in the back burner, but there was just someone who made good fit um, for it. And they, they've been following along for like a couple of years now. So um, send in an application. I'm always happy to look it over. And if maybe there's a way to make it work. Same thing for UDW. Um, Antoine says that was gold savage. You'll have to timestamp when that was and what I said so that people can find it. After this video is done, put a comment in so people can find it because no one watches the chat after the video is posted. Seeking value says, I found a property selling for 1.2 million, throwing up 100K net annual income. That's 100% return. What am I missing? Uh, that's an RV park. What am I missing? So um, it depends on what your loan to value is. Most, I think trailer parks are put 25% down or 30% down. So you're Loan to like, I guess 100,000 net net. Is that actual net net? Let's crunch the numbers. Let's find out if that actually is. Is there depreciation factor into that, et cetera, and so forth. But if that 100 grand, you had to put like $300,000 down and that's a 33% um, return on your down payment. So maybe it needs renovations too. And then that's a 20% return on your down payment. Maybe there's something that is being missed here, right? Um, how would you invest 80K22? Mike Smith, I kind of, I've already covered that before about how I'd invest it. I can't answer that question without enough time. Uh, I saw you with Graham Stephan originally. I'm in his mentorship group. I've been taking classes, learning with mentors. Uh, what class or mentorship have you taken and would you recommend? Gabe, I've never taken a mentorship um, class ever. I've never paid for any real estate coaching ever. But I've got a lot of free coaching from people who I've just met along the way, along the journey of taking for coffee or I've just picked their brain or whatever. So that's been my way of learning is going to meet up groups and just talking to people and providing value to them in some way and then I guess sucking the value out that they give and synthesizing that, right? When someone talks, just taking their value in and then understanding what they're saying and then asking a targeted question that gives me value in some way, right? So when someone says something, you have to act on what they've said and you have to, I guess, go deep on what advice they're giving you, right? And that's been something I guess I'm just naturally been good at. I think probably I would up my game in a lot if I did do coaching. And so it's something I've thought about, um, like high performance coaching to take my, my game to the next level and just like double or triple my revenues. It's been a thought. But thank you, by the way, for, uh, for joining since, you know, the original video with uh, Graham. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Good night. All the best, everyone. Thank you, everyone. I got through it all. So that was a long time, a lot longer than I thought. It was a long stream. So if you really enjoyed this whole stream and you stuck through for the whole hour and a half and I was late, um, thank you for watching. I give you a thumbs up. If you can just give me a thumbs up back, that would tell the algorithm that you appreciated it. And if you just share this somewhere, there's just an hour and a half of gold free content. Just share it with the world. I know it's not the most entertaining, the most engaging, but it's like, if you just download this as a, you know, I should put this up as a podcast. I should download these 
will someone volunteer to download these for me and upload them to a podcast? Like I have 150 episodes like this that we can upload. Um, yeah, so. I gotta let you guys go. What I really want. I just heard in the background that I need to go read my daughter's story. So thank you all so much. The secret to unlocking a wealthier you is to spend less, earn more, and maximize returns. Bye, everyone. Have a good Wednesday evening.